studying something about the biblical doctrine of conversion. We looked first into the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And we saw this one who had been such a fanatical hater of Jesus Christ and who had consented to the stoning of Stephen, met on the road to Damascus and transformed into a new being in one of the greatest miracles of all of history. And we've seen the great and good results from that conversion. We looked also into the conversion of a blind man whose faith would not be shaken in the face of ridicule because Jesus had brought sight to his soul. We saw that even in the mystery of suffering, that God has his own plans and his own purposes which he works out. Then last Sunday we looked into the life of a man from Ethiopia, a man who journeyed along a road reading the scriptures from Isaiah 53 of the suffering Savior and was joined by Philip the evangelist who took that occasion to take that passage of scripture and speak unto him Jesus and a wealthy, sophisticated, important official whose heart was not satisfied became a believer in Jesus Christ and was converted. Now we continue the flaming spread of the gospel today by looking into Acts chapter 16. And here we see the gospel as it begins to take in some more classes and kinds of people. I'm beginning to read from verse 6 of the New International Version. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do so. So they passed by Mysia and they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea. Notice the we here. This means that Luke has joined them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. And from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. And on the Sabbath day we went outside the city to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me to be a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit which by which she predicted the future. 
She earned a lot of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities, and they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews who are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten, and after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked them, Men, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. I wanted to speak, I couldn't uh, put this title, I hate to put titles for sermons because I'm never satisfied with them. Cross-cultural evangelism sounds like something that a seminary ought to be teaching. Uh, I should have titled it, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Prayer Meeting, uh, <laughs> because this is about what takes place. But if you start really back in chapter 15, we begin to see that the Spirit of the Lord is already at work in taking his message out. And you see the sovereignty of God and all things working together for good to those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. Two very good men, Paul and Barnabas, one of the first men to believe in the true conversion of Saul of Tarsus and to assist him. Uh, were about to set out on their second journey together. But they had a kinsman, a Barnabas, whose name was John Mark. Mark had gone home from their previous journey, and Paul was not of a mind to take him with them on this second journey. And so a dispute arose between none other than Paul and Barnabas. Yes, believe it or not, there were actually quarrels in the early church. In fact, the word here is paroxysm, which is a big word for a fit. Uh, they, they were so irritated at one another over whether or not to take Mark with them that they decided that they would agree to disagree. And so Paul left and took Silas and later gets Timothy. And Barnabas takes Mark. Mark. 
and the Holy Spirit used the whole thing. If it hadn't been for the good spirit and the great sense of Barnabas, you wouldn't have any gospel according to Mark in your Bible. And if it hadn't been for the good sense of Paul, you wouldn't have First and Second Timothy, because he got Timothy to take Mark's place. And so they set out on a missionary journey together. And they go, uh, they, first of all, they receive some experience from the Holy Spirit, some uh, something prevents them from going further. They wanted to go one way, but the Spirit said no. They wanted to know a, go another way, and we read an unusual expression, the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't permit them to go that way. And then somehow or rather, just when this vision, come over to Macedonia and help us, comes to Paul in the night, the next words we read in verse 10 of chapter 16, after Paul had seen the vision, which he'd evidently had in the night in his prayers, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Now, we means Luke, and Luke was a doctor. And I wonder if maybe Paul did not need a doctor. It's not inconceivable. Luke was a Greek physician. At any rate, Luke joins them here. Paul can use a man like Luke. We know that he had a thorn in the flesh, which he besought the Lord thrice to remove from him, and it never went away, and God said, My grace is sufficient for thee. I believe Paul would have used the good gifts of God in healing, and that he would have consulted Luke as a physician. And perhaps this is where uh, this works together here, just as we alluded to earlier in Ned and Carol's experience. Here, Paul... And here, Luke, come together. And then we begin to see how they work together for the Lord. They go to Europe now. And this is tremendously important. Because Europe means that beyond Philippi, there will be cities that are going to acquaint us with the way in which God is going to deal with you and me in western North Carolina. Because we have Highlanders here who came from Scotland. And those people back in this day and time when this was taking place, Paul knew that there was such a place as Britain. Paul knew that there was such a place as, as Spain. He knew there was such a place as Europe. And the Spirit is leading him in this way. For in back of Philippi is going to be Corinth, in back of Corinth is going to be Athens. From Athens, he's one day going to Rome, and the whole Western Europe is going to be affected and you and I are going to be touched, and it's going to go all the way out to Hawaii, and it's going to go to Australia, and it'll go around the world. The Lord's purposes are being worked out as year succeeds to year. This week, a friend, several friends of mine were talking about the same thing. We were talking about the program, The Holocaust. It has to do with the diabolical persecution of the Jews, which was unleashed by the demonic. And I don't see how you can account for that except for supernatural, radical evil. The demon power of Adolf Hitler in seeking to eradicate what he called the Jewish Basilius from the face of the earth. In his insanity, he took cars that should have been taking troops to the front line to put little children and take little Jewish children to crematoria where they were to be burned. 
Why was this madman so demon-possessed at the destruction of the Jews? Think of that tiny little minority of Jews. There are more Jews in New York than there are in Palestine. And yet think of how they'd influence history. As one of my friends pointed out to me this week, the Jews didn't invent geometry. We certainly don't all speak Hebrew. They didn't give us any great language. What did they give us? They gave us faith in God. And that faith in God has been attacked by the archenemy of God. And Satan has sought their destruction. And there's no other way to account for it that I can see other than that. There is a colossal battle going on behind the scenes in the world. The transcendence of God is at work. And there are radical evil forces at work in the world too. Solzhenitsyn pointed this out to us when he came to this country a year or so ago at the riots that took place in New York City. And he spoke of radical evil. One of the first public officials I've ever seen make any allusion to Satan in an address. But Satan is alive and well on the planet Earth. And his forces are at work. And you see this in the destruction of the Jews. And so when they are persecuted, what is going to happen? That Ethiopian that we talked about last week had somehow learned about the Jewish Messiah. That's why he was reading Isaiah 53. That's why Jesus went to the cross to fulfill that prophecy by which redemption is wrought. And this Lydia, this Lydia, this seller of purple, this woman who is a proselyte, a convert to Judaism, a prosperous business person, is the first convert on European soil. Once we were going to the place of prayer, they saw there this woman, Lydia, and we are told that the Lord opened her heart. She was evidently a person of wealth because purple cloth was very expensive. Uh, the dye for it was expensive, and it was used only by royalty and by people who were very wealthy. And she was evidently a person who had a big enough home to accommodate these missionary people whom she later invites to come and stay at her house. And we are told that the Lord opened her heart. There weren't even ten male Jews in Philippi, so there was no synagogue. And yet they were reading the scriptures. You see, they were wanting that contribution this woman, they were wanting that contribution which the Jews have brought into the world of a transcendent God who speaks. And her heart was already halfway open when Paul joined that little prayer meeting group. I often think about prayer meeting and the things that have happened at prayer meeting and how God uses prayer meeting. Oh, the Lord uses the great services sometimes on Sunday morning. But oh, how he uses prayer meetings when hearts are really open to him. There are great things can take place. That's when John Wesley got converted. Got converted at a time when deism was rampant in England, where the saloons had big signs up that you could get drunk for a penny and dead drunk for two pennies where the churches were really empty and were without any power, 
where there was an effort to put forth some sort of defense of the Christian faith, I remember having to wade through it in a class of, in apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith that William Robinson taught at Columbia Seminary. Butler's Analogies of Religion. Man, what a book to read. That, we had to read that. It was written back in um, 17 and 36. And it was going to be the book to turn the tide to get people back to belief in the supernatural and the scripture. And I'm sure Bishop Butler meant well, and it's a good book. But not everyone's all that intellectual. So the Lord takes a man at prayer meeting named John Wesley, and he gets converted. And as a result of it, what Bishop Butler's learned treatise could not do, God does with some preaching that goes on to coal miners and people out in the field by John Wesley and hymns that are sung by Charles Wesley and preaching by George Whitfield. And a great revival takes place that sweeps all across England. So you see what can take place there at a prayer meeting when the heart is open. Not a big congregation, but what a tremendous thing took place that night in that chapel on Aldersgate Street when Wesley was converted. Wonder what it was that made Lydia hungry for God. She was wealthy. She had position and authority. But still she sensed a need. Still she sensed a need. And when she heard about Jesus, she became a believer in the Lord. And she received Christian baptism, and her household received baptism too. There are plenty of people who have much as far as this world's goods are concerned, who are still thirsty, who are not satisfied inside, whose hearts are yearning for something. There's a God-shaped blank there, which nothing else is filling up. This is a very, very important book, which I've shown to you on one other occasion called The Narcissistic Culture, a book that shows you what happens to a society which makes its chief aim to seek after pleasure. The chief end of man is not to seek pleasure, it's to glorify God. And yet when we seek after pleasure, we become a narcissistic culture. We are like that Greek that looked into the pool and saw the reflection of himself and falls in love with himself and then self-gratification becomes the big thing. But what happens when we do this? Do we care about the boat people? No. Do we care about anyone except self and self-gratification? And this is what the man is speaking to us about. In their emotional shallowness, their fear of intimacy, their hypochondria, their pseudo-self-insight, their promiscuous pansexuality, their dread of old age and death, the new narcissist, bear the stamp of a culture that has lost interest in the future. And it's also lost its sense of responsibility to the past. Patriotism used to wring our hearts because we thought of what other people had done for us and we were grateful. But somehow we think that the past holds no shares in what we do today. And so we spend it up. And that narcissistic thing won't work. Lydia realized that there was a need that could be met by transcendence. It could be met in her heart by faith in God. Well, Paul sees her baptized. 
and her household baptized, and the joy of the Lord comes into her heart. And then he continues to go to this place where prayer is being made. He must have been there for some weeks, because we see that this woman, this young girl who is demented with some demon, oraculous spirit. I went one time in Greece to Delphi, where the oracle is supposed to have appeared. Uh, means oral, something that speaks. And uh, this woman would have involuntary utterances that she would speak out. And uh, the ancients considered this uh, uh, to be some uh, magical powers. Uh, Paul knew that it was some demon possession. Some demon had possessed her to do this thing. But notice what she's saying. She kept coming after them day after day, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now that doesn't sound very bad, does it? These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. It's an unsolicited testimony. And it goes on day after day after day. But one old Puritan commentator that I read said this, God never uses the testimony of the devil. <laughs> Remember that. God never uses the testimony of the devil. She was demon-possessed, and she was saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept on and on until Paul could bear it no longer, and so he turned around and he said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, come out of her. And boom, she's healed. It's a tremendous miracle of God. And this poor thing, who was nothing but property, who was owned by her owners, who had their property rights infringed upon by her healing. And she, like that poor demoniac of Gadara, out of whom Jesus cast demons, and whose owners were more interested in their profit in pork than they were in the demon-possessed man being healed. These men become upset because their gain is lost. Think of the great industries in America through gambling and pornography and through alcohol, through drugs and other things, multi-billion dollar things that are upset tremendously when the power of Jesus Christ comes and changes everything. Well, right away, someone has said that everywhere Paul went, there was either a revival or a riot. And here there were both. There was a revival, and then there is a riot. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and silence, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. Stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded them to guard them carefully, but on receiving such orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. If you, had, if you have an old Liberty dime, and you look on the back of it and see that, that those rods that are bound together, those are lictors. And that rod was the symbol of corporal punishment which the Roman government could administer. And Paul and Silas had been beaten with rods. And their neck and their hands and their feet are in stocks. It's more uncomfortable than gave their chapel. And, 
And yet they sing praises to God. Praises to God at midnight with a bleeding back, hurting, terribly hurting. And we are told, and the other prisoners were listening. An unconscious witness was going out. They didn't know the other prisoners were listening. They started singing some of the scriptures, some of the paraphrases. Maybe Paul turned to Silas and said, Silas, you tell your testimony to him. I'll tell mine. I'm sure that there were people in that dungeon who would want to have suicided themselves, who cursed and hated the Roman guards, who would want to bribe them or to kill them if they could get out. And yet here these men sing praises to God. What tremendous faith we see there. Boy, that really is exciting when you see the faith that is precious in the darkness and in the pain that hangs in like that. No wonder an earthquake came. The earthquake came. You remember how that old jail shook and the jailer came running back there looking at the place in the shambles and realizing that all the prisoners would flee and grabbed his sword and started to kill himself. Our hedonistic culture would have said, go ahead, stick it in your ear, kill yourself. We want you to be dead, but not Paul. He said, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. Well, now that jailer knew that these were very unusual prisoners. They'd been in town for some weeks. He had heard their talk about salvation and about Jesus. The word had gotten out. And he couldn't help but believe that here was something that was able to meet his needs too. And trembling in, he falls down before them and says to them those words that have been used many times. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? He never saw such a wonderful triumph as was in these men when they suffered for Christ's sake and yet sang. Do you know you've got an English Bible to read in all these translations? William Tyndall. William Tyndall got burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. And his ashes were ground up and thrown into the river. And when he was put in prison, and someone spoke to him about the persecution. Do you know what William Tyndall said? He said, I never expected anything else. I never expected anything else. So when we witness for Jesus, and we do happen to get hit, just remember you're in good company with the martyrs and the saints down through the ages. Paul said, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer got lights. He brought them out and asked them what he had to do to be saved. And Paul said, Believe, cast all your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household, you and your household, this tough old Roman soldier who needed repentance, got it all right there that night. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They explained and clarified what they meant. And to all the others in his house, and at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. 
That's proof of his conversion. He washed their wounds. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And the whole family was filled with joy because they had come to believe in God. That's a tremendous thing. You see the new life that comes there. Last week I told you something about how Steven Spielberg's book and film was a secularist effort to meet man's need for transcendence. This morning Franklin told you about the suffering of the boat people. Here's a little book on Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa in visiting the West, by the way, she was born in Hungary. In visiting the West, she had this to say about those of us in our prosperous society. People today are hungry for love, for understanding love, which is much greater and is the only answer to loneliness and great poverty. That's why we, and she's referring to herself and her sisters of charity, are able to go to countries like America and England and Australia where there's no hunger for bread. But their people are suffering from another kind of hunger, terrible loneliness, terrible despair, terrible hatred, feeling unwanted, feeling helpless, feeling hopeless. They have forgotten how to smile. They have forgotten the beauty of the human touch. They are forgetting what is human in love. They need someone who will understand and respect them. This brings to, the church does this in its sense of community. Here you have a rich lady. Here you have nothing but a poor slave girl. Here you have a tough Roman soldier. And the class barriers are all broken down. And they love one another in Christ. No wonder years later, from prison in Rome, Paul can write a letter back full of joy and love at his remembrance of the work of grace that comes in this house here. Now what he has done for others, he can do for you. And if you have never given your heart or your life to Jesus Christ, you can give as much of yourself as you know how to give to as much of him as you understand right now. You can make it known to me after the church or to Dr. Wilson or to any number of Christian friends. And you can ask for further instruction in the Christian faith. But the important thing is to make a decision and a commitment when the Spirit moves you. The Holy Spirit moved these. The Lord sought them and he worked in their heart works of grace. Let's pray that he works in your heart a work of grace too. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be all glory, honor, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore.